Yesterday I was in a conversation with my son, and he's really tied in to the Somali community. And he said, like, how do you know, like, our faith is the right faith? Because when I'm around my Muslim friends, like, they're 100% convinced that their faith is the right faith. And then we were watching BYU play last night on TV, and BYU is a Mormon university, and they believe 100% that their faith is the right faith. And we talked about <clears throat> some theological stuff, but the reality is only our God can take someone from the grave to the garden. I, is only, I, said, I said only Jesus could put me back together again. And it's only our God that we can come and be 100% authentic. Like where those lyrics say, like, I can show you my weaknesses. Like I think we, we sing that and it's so easy just to kind of glance over the reality that we have a God that we can be real with, we can be authentic with, we don't have to pretend with. And that's not true of the other gods of the other religions. So just wrestle with what you're singing. Not, not just the enjoyment of worshiping together, but the reality of the God that we serve. So for you guys that don't know me, my name's Jake Sullivan. I'm a head of all next-gen ministry here at Grace Church. I spend a lot of time with young adults. I wasn't supposed to be teaching tonight. <clears throat> Matt was supposed to be teaching. And he's under the weather a little bit. And so I got, I got pulled in to teach again. So I got to teach last week, which I was prepared for, and then teach this week. And I said, LB, what's, what's the text this week? And she goes, Matthew 5, 1 through 12. And I'm not a biblical scholar by any means, so I didn't, I didn't know what that was off the top of my head. So I open up my phone, and I look on the Bible app, and it's, it's the Beatitudes. And I'm like, whose idea was this? Like, do you guys know why? Like, our senior pastor wrote a book on the Beatitudes. No one should preach a message in Grace Church on the Beatitudes when your senior pastor has written a book on it. All right? And I told him today, I said, you know what I'm preaching tonight? He said, what are you preaching? I said, I'm preaching the Beatitudes. I, I'm just going to come up on stage. I'm going to give everyone your book, and then we're going to leave, and we're going to read the book in small groups. And you probably get more out of it. But God really used it to speak to me, and hopefully it will speak to you as well. But in the midst of prep preparing, I've been thinking a lot about, like, the titles of our series. <clears throat> and they're very purposeful that, that we try to wrestle through, like, these different titles. And the idea so far this year, like, the, the previous series was in with the new. This series is out with the old. And there's kind of this idea of out with the old and in, in with the new. And as I was pondering the teachings up to this point of the year, there's one thought that continued to come to the front of my mind. And this thought is around this idea of conflict. Like by definition, conflict as a verb is defined as two or more things being incompatible or at variance. And I even like the second half of the definition. It is where two or more things clash. Like they cannot coexist. And when something new comes into our conscience and it replaces something that we have been used to, it can create a great inner conflict. And it's, it's interesting to watch how many of us are resistant to what is new or different because we are comfortable with the old. So I grew up in an era of CDs. Anybody know what CDs are? I, it's a small record thing, and you got a scratch on it, and it would skip, and it would be done, and you throw it away. 
we had a CD player. You have to put it in to listen to the music. And when you go into Best Buy, like I love going into Best Buy now, there's so much space. Well, back in the day, when I went to Best Buy in high school, you could barely walk because it was just lined with CDs in alphabetical order. If you wanted just one song, you had to buy the entire album for $11.99. And it, it was a big treat when we got one. And for us old people in the room, we had CD cases, and we would burn CDs and share with one another. And, and then suddenly, essentially, like out of nowhere, streaming music began to be available. And when I was in college, it was through a platform called Napster, which was actually illegal. We won't talk too much about that. That was my pre-Jesus days. But then Apple, as I was getting ready to graduate, began to transform the streaming industry, making it legal just in time for me to become a Christian. But suddenly, like, CDs were no more. And it was crazy to watch a generation of people hang on to CDs as long as they possibly could before making a change to streaming music. Like right now in our culture, we're going to see this play out with electric vehicles. Like I truly believe one of you in this room will be up here in about 20 years preaching about a thing called a gas vehicle. And, and if I right now, if I bring up electric vehicles, especially to my dad who's in his mid-60s, you would swear I said I saw a UFO last night and aliens landed in my backyard. Like he, can't, he can't fathom the idea. And sometimes it's not always the big thing. Sometimes it's the small things. Like my son, JJ, he refuses to upgrade his ghetto phone to a free iPhone 13, which he's eligible for, because he likes his phone. He's comfortable with it. He knows where everything is. It's simple and easy to operate in a place that he knows, and he does not want to change what he already knows. Now, I'm going to continue to pick on JJ just a little bit, but JJ hates change, and I think a lot of us in this room are the same way. J.J. would love to stay in the old as long as he could possibly stay there. And I might be overgeneralizing slightly, but I recently switched our TV service from DirecTV to Xfinity. You would swear I was trying to kill him. And his biggest grumbling to me was that he had to re-memorize the TV stations, the numbers for the TV stations. And I said, dude, all you got to do is press the microphone with Xfinity and tell it what TV station you want to go to. You don't even have to know the number anymore. He's like, no, I'm not doing that. I'm like, well, why would you not do that? He's, he's comfortable in a place. And now I'm giving JJ a hard time, but for many of us, if we're real tonight, a lot of us in this Christian life struggle with old in order to embrace the new. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. As awesome as this reality is that the old is gone and the new has come when we say yes to Christ, it still creates conflict with what we knew and we're oftentimes quite comfortable with in what God is calling us to become. So in the, in the Gospels, we see this conflict play out in two primary ways. In the beginning here will be a little bit of a review from last week, but the main conflict that we see play out over and over again is between Jesus and the religious elite. Last week we had the opportunity to see how we all have a propensity to take God's good gifts, turn them into religious duty as we strive to be right with God. I've been wrestling over the week, where does this actually come from? And here's what I pondered our series titles. Here's what the Lord was showing me. For hundreds of years, God's people were bound to the law in order to be right with God. Then suddenly, like a snap of the fingers, Jesus shows up on the scene and says, Hey, the only way to be right with God is through me as the perfect sacrifice. 
It was in an instant, the old was gone and the new had come. And it's not, I mean, oversimplifying, but it's not much different than the CDs. It's like, oh, we're listening to CDs and boom, now you couldn't find a CD if you wanted to. Like Jesus showed up on the scene, and like we got to discuss last week, many of us are still wrestling with this conflict. Do we embrace the gifts of God because we're in love with God or because we're trying to earn right standing with God? And inside many of us, this creates conflict. I think for a lot of us, it is because our culture operates very much like the culture of the religious elite of Jesus' day. And let me give you a few examples. How many athletes do we have in the room tonight? If you're an athlete. All right, now think about it. You're an athlete. You have to perform in a certain way in order to get a certain reward. And what's that reward that we're all striving for? Ultimately, playing time. And we get that from our coach. A coach-athlete relationship is a performance-based relationship. Same thing is true with school. If I want to receive an A, then I have to study, turn in my work. Maybe for some of you dudes, butter up the teacher. They still give me a hard time about Spanish class in high school. They're like, you did no work, and she passed you. And I'm like, Miss Perry liked me. But it's, a, but it's a performance-based relationship. In order to get a job, I have to have such and such an education and such and such a resume. And it's a performance-based relationship. Our entire world is driven through performance-based relationships. But when we come to know Christ, like everything is flipped upside down. Jesus did what we cannot do, and to be in relationship with him, he requires nothing from you except faith. And for many of us, this new way of living creates a great inner conflict between the world's systems and God's perfect sacrifice. We have to be willing to do away with the old, the world's systems, when we come to Christ. Now, we operate in culture and we operate in the world, but at the same time, we're doing away with it and we're trusting in the perfect sacrifice. The second conflict we're going to see not just this week, but throughout the rest of the year, and quite frankly, every single time you open up the Word of God is the conflict between Christianity and culture. They cannot coexist. There is no such thing as a cultural Christian. You either stand with culture, you stand with Christ. Now, there maybe is no one in the church more engulfed in culture than myself, but I don't stand with culture. I don't remove myself from culture because the lost are in culture. But I don't stand with culture. I stand with Christ. But when we come to Christ, it's it's we're out of the old, and the old is culture. And we're in with the new, God's word. That's what we stand on. That's the new thing we stand on, whether it makes sense to us or not. And tonight we're going to open up God's word, and we're going to wrestle with one of these conflicts between God's word and culture. What God defines as blessed is drastically different than what culture would deem as blessed. So if you've got your Bible, open up to Matthew 1 through 12, and we're going to walk through the text. And I'm not going to have time to cover it all tonight. Otherwise, we could be here till 930, and you guys miss small groups, and you don't want to hear me talk that long. Matthew 5, 1 through 12 is really designed to probably be a three-part sermon series. And we're going to have you guys wrestle a lot in your small groups with the text tonight. But we're going to kind of cover the beginning. But I'll read the entirety of the text. It says, see in the crowds, again, we're in the ESV, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And I'm going to jump in right into verse 3. And this idea of being blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what, what, is, what is Jesus ultimately talking about? What does this actually mean? Think of being poor in spirit as a genuine recognition that you are a sinner. That there's nothing good in you. You, are, you fully recognize that you're far from God and do not deserve his mercy or grace. I'm going to talk about this in a little bit in more depth. But in July and August, I walked through the darkest two months of my life. Now, when you're in a dark season, you don't always know you're in a dark season. It's not until you come like, kind of back into the light and God kind of sets you back up again that you look back and you're like, wow, it was a dark season. And here, here's what I, as I reflect back on that season, only... By the grace and mercy of Lord Jesus did I not get plucked off by the enemy. There was nothing righteous in me. There was nothing good in me. It was the grace and mercy of Jesus. Listen to what one, how one commentary puts it. He says, the kingdom of heaven is not given on the basis of race, earned merits, military zeal, or the powerful or via wealth. It is given to the poor, the despised, the prostitutes, those who are so poor they know they can offer nothing and do not try. I'm going to tie right into last week. They cry for mercy and they are hurt. But here's the problem. Culture says know your worth. A culture says you are powerful. Have you guys watched a lot of the, the new Nike commercials? That's essentially what, what Nike is for. Like know your worth. Know your strength. Know your voice. Know how powerful you are. Like you're inherently morally good. Religion is for the weak and not the strong. Like culture is, is bombarding us with this idea. And Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Those who fully recognize there is nothing good in me but the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. So one of our Grace Church elders, Jeff Stone, is preaching the same text out of Chaska tonight. And we met together to talk through the scriptures and but he provided this incredible imagery that I want to give to you guys regarding this particular beatitude. How many of you have seen the movie Inside Out? Some of you guys seen that movie? All right, it's, awesome. it's an awesome movie. And what do they do with the emotion of sadness all throughout the movie? Anybody know? They push it away. Like they, every time the emotion of sadness comes, it, it gets pushed away. And that is what so many of us do. Since January, I've been walking through a season of brokenness with someone I love very, very much. And then on top of that, I woke up one July morning completely blind in my right eye. Long story short, I had a cataract show up on my right eye for no explainable reason. And it sat right over the lens of my eye, taking away all my vision. And they could not get me in for surgery for about two months. Which meant for two months, I was blind in one eye, which is the most claustrophobic, awful, anxiety-ridden experience that you could ever experience 
while navigating a place of deep brokenness with a loved one. And you mix these two situations together, and I'm telling you guys, I had never experienced depths of sadness like I did in that season. However, instead of embracing the season of sadness, I often found myself trying to numb the pain, pushing away the grief. And is that not what so many of us do in seasons of sadness and grief? We push it away. We numb ourselves. We do this through binge-watching Netflix. I think I've seen every single Criminal Minds episode ever between July and August. And Shark Tank. Like, I, like every time I flip it on, I'm like, already seen it, already seen it, already seen it. Hours of mindless video games, drinking, drugs, pornography, sex, social media. And, and what we're really doing is we're pushing away what we're experiencing in the realms of mourning. In the end of Inside Out, what ultimately saved the little girl, the emotion of sadness. When she stopped pushing it aside and instead embraced it, it was then she was able to deal with the situation at hand. That's what God is saying to us. And do you know how I ultimately got through those two months? I would stop and cry. I know that's super hard because you guys see me up here on this platform. I would just stop and cry. And there were two songs that I would listen to over and over and over in those days. There's a song, it's titled, You're Gonna Be Okay by Jen Johnson. And Who You've Always Been by Hope Darst. And I would let those songs play with the truth from God's word showering over me. And I would cry sometimes for an hour. I would just weep. Uncontrollably. Usually in my car in the driveway so no one saw me. Occasionally I called Pastor Troy and then was moment. But after I, I embraced the emotion of mourning and stopped trying to numb it, do you know what would happen? I'd be fine. I'd carry on with the rest of my day. And here's what I realized in those moments when I just sat and mourned and I stopped numbing the reality of my situation. I would account, encounter God in a deep and profound way. It was him who would comfort me, lift me back up, set my feet back on solid ground so I could carry on. And God says those who mourn are blessed because it is in those places we experience the fullness of a God who comforts. However, here's what the world is saying, self-care. Take a vacation, do yoga, meditate, take a personal day, binge on Netflix, get a dog, go shopping, splurge on yourself. And Jesus says mourn. You'll be blessed through the comfort he provides. Culture says self-care, you just need a vacation to the Caribbean. And thus conflict is at hand. Now, I'm not saying you can't encounter God in the Caribbean. God's in the Caribbean as well. I'm simply saying like self-care is not the answer to experiencing God's comfort the true action of mourning is. That's an amazing truth. And I look back on those two months, and I'm still in a season of, of grief and sadness, but I look back on those two months, and God taught me how to mourn. I didn't have to be strong, I didn't have to pretend, I didn't have to fake it. I could sit and weep with my God. And it was in that place that I experienced him in a, in a, in a profound way. Jesus continues on in verse 5 and says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And, he, and here's what I want you to quickly understand about this beatitude. What God is not saying is he, that he wants you to be a pushover, unable to stand boldly for what is right. This Greek word for meek is, I'm not sure if I'm saying it right, but pros. And, and there's not just really one word in the English language that can fully give it all of its meaning. Ultimately, meek is strength under control. Listen to what a few commentaries have to say when talking about this idea of meekness. And I think we're going to have them up on the screen. The meek 
can be angry, but restrain their wrath in obedience to the will of God. And will not be angry unless they can be angry and not sin. Nor will they be easily provoked by others. All of us need to underline that, write that in our notes, put that in our Bible. All right, we're not going to be easily provoked by others. It says, meek men suffer wrong without bitterness or desire for revenge. To be meek means to show a willingness to submit and work under proper authority. To be meek also shows a willingness to disregard one's own rights and privileges. And now I'm just going to be honest with you guys. As I studied this idea of meekness, and I had never studied it before, never really gave it much thought in, in preparing to teach you guys, I had to genuinely repent and cry out to the Lord for this character trait. My bend is to win at all costs. Like all costs. I was thinking about, I was trying to think about some examples where I'd win at all costs. I'm giving you guys an example in basketball. So everybody face guarded me. I was a really good scorer. I scored 3,000 points in high school, 1,800 points in college. And people would always be face guarding me and trying to deny me the ball. And there was a guy in Colorado named Blair Wilson. Blair Wilson was the hairiest dude I ever met. Like, he was hairy. And so I would let Blair get all up in me, his big, sweaty, hairy self. And I would just bend down. I'd pull the hair on his legs, and he would stop, turn, boom. I was off the screen, and I was open. Like, that, that's really, that, that's who I am. And then my bend when I am hurt is to be quick to speak and spout off, if not want to fight you. I was thinking about a time at Iowa State. I don't know if this is my pre-Jesus days, my coming to Jesus days, my post-Jesus days, but somewhere in that mix. But Jared Holman, our 6'9 guy, just cheap shot at me in a walkthrough for no reason. And he's like 6'9", 270, and we came to full-out blows. All the way up the ramp. Coaches, teammates, everybody trying to separate us. Like, that's who I really am. So when I'm hurt, I'm not like this meek men suffer wrong without bitterness or desire for revenge. My bend is to win at all costs. My bend is when hurt, I'm going to hurt you back. Recently, my son in Ghana died, who we were trying to adopt for since 2014. And there were two men in 2018 that didn't defend his life, according to the word of God. And when Julius died, I prepared to send a text to them, based on Ezekiel 33, that his blood is on your hands. And what God did, he stopped me. And so what's that going to do to help the situation? What's that going to do to advance the gospel? It's going to create division. It's going to create brokenness. And there's nothing godly in it. So I saved it for a while in my notepad, and then I deleted it, and we moved on. And, and, and that's the reality of these is, like, God says, blessed are the meek. I'm going to trust God in that place. So Because of time tonight, we're going to stop at verse 5. And I could preach for hours on this text. But I want you guys to, to really wholeheartedly discuss this in your small groups tonight and, and continue on down the line. But I do believe this. And I told Pastor Troy this today too. I said, I think if you really pursue the attitude one, two, and three, all the others fall into place. 
Like if I can pursue those three, and the reality is salvation only comes through being blessed, poor in spirit. Like that full recognition. And one other thing I want you guys just to catch before you go into small groups and, and discuss. Every blessing is connected to a promise. So blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It, it's countercultural, the promise with the blessing. Like the, the last one in, in verse 12, for your reward is great in heaven. My love and affection for Jesus did on, for me on the cross drives me, but there are many days I'm like, I want that reward. I want that promise. And here's what we know of God from Genesis to Revelation. He never, ever breaks a promise. God is a promise-keeping God. And here's one final thing that, that I, I'm going to be super honest with you about with regards to the scripture and many scriptures. It doesn't make sense. Like if we're really honest, Matthew 5, 1 through 12 does not make sense based on the culture that we live in. It doesn't. But this is where we need to simply have faith. Like we within Christian communities so often categorize faith only in the realm of believing that Jesus came, lived a life you could not live, died a death you deserve to die, and overcame death three days later, giving you eternal life. And yes, that is the central tenet of faith. But God also asks us to have faith in what he says in his word, that it's true for the Christian life, even in the midst of culture. Like, if you put your faith in Jesus, then that means you have also put your faith in the word of God being 100% true. There is no errancy in God's word. There's no error. He doesn't make a mistake. He doesn't break a promise. Whether it makes sense to you or not, it is true. And for me, I've chosen to believe that God's word is true and perfect without error. Then when I come across a scripture like I did with verse 5 in meekness, I let it convict me. And I repent. And I believe wholeheartedly with what God is saying is true. Like in my current life situation, guys, and, and someday, young adults know, but someday I'll, I'll share it with you guys maybe. if The Lord leads me that way. But in my current life situation, meekness does not seem like the best character trait for me to pursue. But if God says it's true, then I'm going to pursue it with every part of my heart. Even if I don't fully understand it, I will choose in faith to truly believe it. However, I also want to encourage you before you guys head into small groups tonight, be honest. Like where is there conflict existing in you between culture and God's word? Are you having trouble believing in faith certain aspects of what God says is true? We want you guys to know me, Matt, Laura, everybody associated with Next Senior High, Next High School, whatever we call it now. This is a safe place to wrestle. Like, this is a safe place to doubt. This is why we do Christian community. Like, bring your struggles. Bring your wrestlings. Don't suppress them and pretend. Because I'm telling you, I'm 40 years old. If you do, you will get plucked off by the enemy. You pretend and you push away the reality of your doubts, you will get plucked off by the enemy. It's like, so we all seem to give this doubting Thomas a ton of grief about his doubting. 
How you know it's true? Judas also doubted. Otherwise, he would have never sold Jesus out. Doubting Thomas, though, was real with his doubts, while Judas just pretended. And, and what we see with doubting Thomas is that despite his doubts, he stayed connected to the Christian community. That is where he was when Jesus returned through his resurrection. He was hanging out with his brothers in Christ. And Judas is doubting he ran to the world. And he sold Jesus out for some financial gain. So like in the end, doubting Thomas is rejoicing with Jesus in heaven and Judas got plucked off. So even in your doubts, I just want to encourage you guys, like stay connected to his word, but stay connected to his body. It's why we do small groups here. Like you're free to be Thomas. I want, I want you guys to hear me. Like you are free in your small group to be Thomas. If you've got to pretend some other place, pretend. But here at Grace Church on Wednesday nights, the best night of the week, you can be Thomas. Like, we are your family. This is a safe place. And for some of us tonight, here's what out with the old means. That we are going to do away with our years of pretending. I think that's what God is asking of some of you tonight. You've been faking this whole thing. You have doubts and you have wrestlings and there's conflict between you and culture. And you have been pretending. And as we conclude this series, out with the old, in with the new, this whole idea. I think for some of you, out with the old is to stop pretending. Like tonight, show up in a small group and, and, and be real with the conflict that you're wrestling with. Between God's word and culture. Let's pray. Lord, you are good. You are faithful. And God, we trust that what you say in your word is true. Though we may doubt, though there may be a conflict between culture and your word, things we hear in one platform and things we experience in another, but God, tonight, Lord, let us just trust in your word in faith that what you say is the blessed life is truly the blessed life. And God, that we know you are a promise keeping God. And the promises that you make to us throughout Matthew 5, 1 through 12 will come to pass with 100% certainty. And Lord, for those of us doubting tonight, let us be real. Nothing wrong with doubts. Jesus did not condemn doubting Thomas. Instead, he relieved his doubts. And that's what Christian community is for. That's why we meet. So let us be real. Let's be authentic in small groups. Let's not hide. Let's not struggle for conversation. Because we know the reality is we're, we all are wrestling between culture and your word, culture and following Jesus, that this would be a safe place just to come before you, God, and experience the fullness of your grace and mercy. We pray all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen.